I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. Welcome back. Today I chatted with Maria Dabrowski, and I, um, I had recorded this interview a few months ago, and it's one of those interviews where I just was re-listening to it and thinking about the depths of wisdom she has and advice she has, specifically because she's she likes the sea turtles and she wants to promote sea turtle conservation, but she's such an example, an impressive example of her ability to set aside like the the um, dazzling and sexy work of actually being with a sea turtle and is doing the at-home advocacy wherever she's living at the time, um, of protecting them through environmental communication, science communication, and her social media platforms. So it's just a really good example of what you can do if you're not able to be in the field, if you don't have the funds to be in the field. Um, there are still ways, tons of ways that you can help conservation this way. So I just was so impressed with our conversation. Towards the end, she does talk a little bit about ecotourism, and I got really excited because that's the direction. Uh, as of right now, Nova is trying to go in, but specifically ecotourism marketed and geared towards people who have the means and the funds to pay to help offset the costs that we're suffering with through low income, low wages in the conservation field that caused most of us to feel this burnout and this lack of diversity and this lack of inclusion and this lack of um, getting individuals exposed to conservation who you know don't have the funds or the means to get in the field. So no, there's no one size fits all solution to some of the issues we discuss and talk about, but it's a really rich conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking with Maria. So without further ado, this is my interview with Maria Dabrowski. So Maria, Maria, yes. Maria, yeah. tell me about yourself, about your life, what you're doing now, what have you done in the past? What do you want to talk about? Okay, let's see. <laughs> you never know where to begin. All right, I'll give, I'll give a fast summary. I was born in Mexico. Okay. Then I moved to Poland, lived in Poland for nine years, then moved to the U.S., okay. to the Chicagoland area, and then went to um, college at Washington University in St. Louis. I chose that school because I was interested in studying the brain, and they have mm -hmm. a really cool program called uh, Philosophy, Neuroscience, and Psychology, and so it's this like really cool mesh of all three of those topics, and I thought that was so neat. What were the three again? Philosophy. philosophy, neuroscience, and psychology. Okay. Yeah. So that I thought that was super cool. Um, I didn't really know much about WashU other than that program. So I applied on a whim, but turned out to be a super awesome school. So um, I went there and I think it was, so I started doing research. I was researching Parkinson's disease. Um, I also briefly researched sleep, but Parkinson's disease was kind of the path I chose to go down. Um, and it was my, junior year when I, I don't know, I wasn't loving, I wasn't having a great experience with the, the lab that I was in. Um, and I was 
very much in the mindset of, if this is how it's going to be, then this is not how I want. I don't want to join academia if it's going to be like this, this cutthroat, this unsupportive. Um, and I was just not having a good time. Um, I was also struggling academically a little bit where the classes that I was having so much fun taking like biology, for example, I just wasn't performing well. And so that was, it was all these things. And I was just very sad and I was lying in bed and I was watching YouTube videos and I saw the viral video of, um, two people who I have now communicated with, um, pulling the straw out of the sea turtle's nose. Mm-hmm. Then I cried even more, but for a different reason this time, right? I was so mad and I called my partner and I was like, okay, we have to do something because we were talking about spring break. What did we want to do? And so we raised some money and we went to Costa Rica to a small sea turtle conservancy on an island on the Caribbean side. And what year was this? This was in, okay, I got this. Hold on. I graduated in 2018. This was the spring semester so this was 2017, the start of 2017. Okay. Trying to get my timeline right. Yeah. So we did end up going to Costa Rica to the small, small sea turtle conservancy. The island you know, had no water, no electricity. It was very quote unquote rustic conditions, but we had a fantastic time. And the reason we chose this particular place is because we paid very little for like actually staying there, but the, the little more that we did pay went to tour guides and those tour guides were in the language that I used to use then were poachers, right? And so our paying them for that night was for them to be a tour guide instead of going and hunting sea turtles, right? So that we got super on board with that. It was run by two people. And um, Gabby uh, used to hunt turtles himself. He's from Costa Rica. Sherry was from the U.S. She actually passed away last year. And so I don't know what their situation is. I don't know if he's trying to continue running it or if it's just like completely done with Sherry. But yeah, it was just the most fantastic place probably I've ever been. But the the important part from that is that we realized that these people that everyone like shames as being poachers and horrible people are in fact just trying to get money for their families right and so even calling them poachers and putting that label on them is kind of like okay we're, we're immediately like putting them in a box a bad box and saying we don't want to talk about them anymore or like when you hear of a poacher getting killed by an animal in Africa and everyone's like yay and it's like no no we are not celebrating that that's wrong um so in Costa Rica I was realizing that our guides who also hunt turtles had just this wealth of knowledge that largely goes ignored by you know science and that so it was that but then also realizing that like the language that we use to discuss conservation and the views that we take as kind of like you know the top views and and this reliance on Western science, I didn't even have all these words for it at the time, right? I was like, this is just not, this, something's missing here. The whole way that it's structured is off. Right, so, right. That was a big, you know, pivot point in my life. And then it was too late for me to switch my degree to something in the environment. Um, so I did stick it out. And I actually switched from the PNP, the philosophy, neuroscience, psychology, to cognitive neuroscience. So how we think and why we think sort of situation. And so I graduated with that degree. But I was like, okay, but I know that my calling is like somewhere in the environmental world. And so I traveled for a little bit. Um, My partner is also 
very internationally based. And so we did a lot of traveling to see his family. Um, And then I came back home and home is near Lake Michigan. And so I sometimes go to Lake Michigan. There's always trash and I always clean it up. And then I think it was like October. It was starting to get a little chillier and I was picking up trash and I was like, this is so miserable. And I wish that I could do it with somebody else. So I reached out to this local environmental organization that I hadn't even heard of um, called Go Green Met, And I reached out to the president and I was like, hey, I'm back with my parents for a little while. Um, I'm in the, you know, this area. Do you all have a beach cleanup program? And they're like, nope, but you can start one. So I interned with them for a while, then became like a paid employee. Wow. Actually moved to Michigan, which is where I am now. And I am at the School for Environment and Sustainability studying conservation ecology. So there's your like, you know, science, Western science, conservation sort of stuff. But then also um, the second specialization is uh, called behavior education and communication. So that's sort of the science communication, but also psychology of the environmental movement, which ties back to what I studied in undergrad, which is still very important to me. So that's uh, here I am now. I'm a grad student. What a journey. <laughs> Sorry, that was a very no, long answer. <laughs> no, do not apologize. I love, like, I want to ask you so many more questions just mm-hmm. to figure out how, Go I love it. hearing people's stories. And that's one of the main I things do I've heard of it. It's just like, uh, so when you, when you were trying to find, when you saw the video of this um, sea turtle with a plastic straw, and you were trying to find ways to help, how did you find those opportunities? What did you search for? Did you just contact uh, Christine Figener? out of the blue and say hey I saw your video (laughs) that's so funny she and I were actually chatting earlier today um I think that I started looking at places where we could volunteer and as we know so many of these places are like pay us three thousand dollars for five days and you can release some sea turtle hatchlings and I was like well don't have that kind of money (laughs) Um, and then I think trying to remember, I think Kevin or I stumbled upon a website that I cannot remember where you could go live with people in exchange for helping them out a little bit. And so we paid mostly for our food for the week on the, you know, we, we went to a, a grocery store with our hosts prior to getting on the boat to go down river to the island. That was probably the most we paid besides the flights. Um, but we paid very little for that actual trip. And what we did while there was turtle walks at night to patrol, we actually didn't come across any. One turtle nested the night we got there, but we were so tired from a full day of traveling. We had gone to bed at like 6 p.m. and we missed it. Um, but we didn't That's see any wildlife else. stuff is. You're like, <laughs> every single time. Yeah, it was not fun. Um, but we, you know, we helped around the property. We helped clean things up. Mm-hmm. We helped remove debris from the beach so that the turtles would have an easier time nesting. So we did stuff, you know, we, we didn't just sit around and lie on the beach and, and whatever, but we did help out um, around the, the very small property. Um, and then uh, again, paid very, very nominal amounts for the tour guides, which is more than they would make with, you know, I wish could have been more, but, um, and so we did things like explore the island and, and stuff like that on a on a boat and see a bunch of cool animals at night. Um, How long were you there? Oh, gosh, I think less than a week. I think it was like six days. Okay. Maybe it was seven days. What's the name of the island? 
um, ba- you're not even going to find it on Google Maps. It's so tiny, but it's called Barra de Pacuare. And it's on the Caribbean side, you said? It's north of, it's south of the Tortuguero National Park. Okay. And it's north, I think, of Limon. That's amazing that you were able to find that because so many, like you said, so many places you search for ways to help sea turtles or ways to volunteer and you have to pay yeah. so much. So I think that's really cool that you were able to dig and find the right opportunity for you that you didn't have to pay an arm and a leg to go experience. Now, how do you feel about paying even for what you were doing? Do you think it was worth it and why? Yes, because I think all of the money that we put in went back to the island. Like, I don't think that there was anything that went to, I mean, part of it went to our two hosts, but they're again, providing jobs for the island, you know, the island folks. So I think that I, I, and we also raised money before we traveled. And so we were able to donate things like the mosquito nets that we brought with us for the beds. Um, Cause the other ones had tears in them. Uh, and we were able to donate two pairs of boots for future guests. And so I feel like everything that we did money-wise was absolutely worth it. I don't, <clears throat> again, it wasn't even a big amount of money relative to what it could have been, right? But I also think that it was a testament to the two hosts. They weren't in it for the money. They were truly in it for the turtles. Like we lived inside the shack that had a couple beds. They lived in a tent on the beach. Like that's, they're in it for the turtles and they're in it for protecting the island and, and, more or as important helping the people who live on the island to have sustainable jobs that don't rely on on hunting turtles and so I feel like yeah I feel like it's 100% worth it in this particular case for sure mm-hmm. we got really lucky and that's what I want Nova Conservation to help do is to find those types of organizations and lift them up and and promote them because right now if you search on Google yeah. you're going to find the ones that can pay to have exactly. To be at the top of the Google search analytics, to have the most marketing, to have the cute pictures of everyone having fun on a beach. And then it costs yeah. you, the conservationist trying to help out. Right. And it goes, so much of that money doesn't go back to actual conservation work. Ugh. Okay. Um, okay. So that was a great experience. So yeah, you've been at Turtle Stuff for like four years. I think the thing that like people always confuses people is that I'm very deeply passionate about sea turtles, but I have like very little experience working with them, right? And like all the stuff that I know is because my family has humored me and bought me textbooks about sea turtles, right? So it's like very much, um, I'm not claiming to be an expert. Everything that I know is stuff that I've read and some of the stuff that I read is 50 years old. Um, (laughs) So I've I've been trying to, I mean, that's that's like my love, that's my... um, sort of that's what guides me and encourages me to keep going um but right now for example my master's thesis is related to turtles um but more about fishers and their perspectives on ocean conservation rather than specifically being about turtles and so yeah so I it's it's in the process of being flushed out still but um part of my family's from Ecuador okay a lot of family in Ecuador um and I've only been able to go twice to Ecuador, but I I just, I feel at home immediately when I get there. Um, And so I knew that when I came to the University of Michigan, I would have to kind of create my own project Mm -hmm. because the way that the University of Michigan does it is that there's master's projects where you're working in teams of like five to six people on predetermined projects. 
and that's what you do. Like that's your deliverable is helping a client. Um, but I went more the practicum route where I still have a quote unquote client, but somebody who I met on Instagram actually, and I look up to this person very much and they do a lot of work with sea turtles. Um, but I knew I wanted to do something with Ecuador, something with oceans. Um, and I think that um, what I learned from Costa Rica, one of the biggest lessons is that so many perspectives are ignored when it comes to conservation, when it comes to prioritizing next steps for conservation. And so I, all of this, plus a little bit of sea turtles led me to creating a survey because the, the relationship between fishers and government in Ecuador, but in many, many places around the world is very fractured. And the government doesn't always listen to the fishers and then the fishers don't feel like they're listened to and may not implement the um, the conservation measures that the government is mandating, right? And so if there's no communication there, it's not, nothing's gonna progress. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my opinion, the perspectives of fishers are often largely ignored, the, the not just the perspectives, but their knowledge, right? Um, mm-hmm. Especially uh, indigenous fishers who have had years and years and centuries of knowledge and centuries of, of with the Western word data, right? Like right. they've been able to see what's going on. And so why, why is that not probably looking? That's launching me down. But, no, but, I want to talk about that too. Like I'm really interested in hearing about well, that and how Western science right. can really benefit from listening to all sorts of voices and perspectives, even though it's not from a peer reviewed data. Exactly. And that's, and that's the big issue. Right. Exactly. So I, I just think I'm, so I, I don't know if I'll be able to actually go to Ecuador because of COVID and because what's super cool is that I'll, I think, fingers crossed, if everything works out, I'll be able to hire students who are at the local university to do the surveys for me. Okay. Um, and so part of, part of the reason also that I wanted to do my, my own sort of project is I was fearful of coming to grad school where everyone has a different background um, and joining a project where people may, through ignorance or arrogance, mm-hmm. not value the perspectives of people who are, you know, fishers on the ground doing the work, who have the knowledge. And so I was hesitant about that, especially in a pandemic where I can't meet people and chat with them and be like, okay, I think you're, I think you're down to, to do like the good work sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so the mm-hmm. organization I'm working for is super, I mean, they, they have little branches in different uh, countries in South America, but you know, it, we're on the same page of this is we're not parachute science scientists right now. We're not coming in here to to take credit. What my what I see my role as is sort of like a conduit, like a vessel. I'm listening to the information. I'm like typing it up so it looks neat and can present to the government. And then the organization who does work with both the government and the fishers and is in good standing with the fishers can can say, listen, this is this is what you're missing, government. Like when you're making these decisions, if you're not acknowledging what the fishers want, you're not going to have people who are keen to, to listen to you. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, that's that's what's up going on now. We're creating the survey and then hopefully within the next month and a half or month, hopefully we can have the surveys start to, to be done and then we'll code them and look for patterns and trends and we'll make everything look presentable. Yeah, so you're a go-between, you're a, yeah, a liaison. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like... I can't, I can't be anything more than that because I, I'm not an Ecuadorian artisanal fisher. Like I'm not, mm-hmm. I can't, I'm, I will be doing everyone a disservice and I will be going against what I believe in if I try to do anything other than listen and, and package things nicely and mm-hmm. send it off. And I've, 
expressed to the organization that I work with that, you know, I want the fishers to be involved with this. I want them to be able to read things. I want them to know what the final product is going to look like before it's being used. So I want it to be very much like a local effort with, I'm just happen to help out a little bit. Yeah. And that, that role is so valuable. I mean, how humbling, how you're so humble to be able to put yourself where you are needed instead of where you want to be. And that is really hard. I know I want to be in the field. I want to go travel. I want to be all these places, but right now conservation needs this, or right now conservation needs you to stay at home and be on your computer and type right. things up sometimes. Right. And it sucks, but that's, if we're conservationists, sometimes we have to do what people yeah. do. <laughs> I think also that you can like, if you're doing international work in a in country that's not where you live, and it's, I feel a little bit different because like, I, I am Ecuadorian, I have family sure. there. That's why I chose Ecuador. I wouldn't have gone anywhere else, right? Like that's where I felt that I needed to go. But that itch to like be involved in field work and everything, I find that if, if you're doing work internationally or even if you're not, even if you're doing it nationally but in a different part of your country, if you can get involved in something local, you can fulfill that need to be. And like volunteer work, I'm doing the breeding bird survey for birds in Ann Arbor. And yeah. I and just joined the, um, the, the natural area preservation part of the government in Ann Arbor has a turtle steward program. <laughs> that too. Awesome. You're like, I'm a turtle steward. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a lot of pride saying that. Um, that helps me, you know, do what I need to do locally to be like involved and get my hands dirty. I totally resonate with that. I used to think that doing the best work for conservation meant I was out in the field and I was doing all the things and but there are so many ways to get involved, especially if you don't have money. So, so can you tell me, talk a little bit about when you travel to a place, um, let's say from my perspective, um, I'm a, I have no relation to anyone in Mexico or Ecuador, but if I wanted to travel to Ecuador to study sea turtles or to study some of the wildlife, what parameters would you expect to have to pay and what as an early career conservationist, would you be like, okay, I can see why you could do that for free or volunteer. What, from your perspective, what do you think is fair and unfair? I think that I don't have the most experience. However, my, what I would do if I'm going somewhere else where I hadn't, you know, where I'm not from, I would think about like, first of all, what organization is it? Is it a local organization where all the funds are going back into the community or a majority of the portion of the funds are going back? Or is it one of those international organizations which are totally ignoring local perspectives, totally ignoring indigenous knowledge, um, not involving local folks and having everyone, like, you don't wanna be a part, in my opinion, of an organization where you get there and everyone in the organization's base is like, for example, American, and you're in a foreign country, and that doesn't that doesn't add up. Like that would make me feel deeply uncomfortable, right? Right. Um, so I think that that's the first thing. And so if you're paying, you know, I don't know. Let's say you do a trip and it's two thousand dollars. If you're paying two thousand dollars to an organization, that's the money is going to stay in that organization and not do anything for for the local area. Then that's not, I I just wouldn't even. That's not even worth it. Which I know is hard when you're starting out. You want to just take these opportunities and they're so cool. And especially if you're doing work with, with animals or plants or, or living organisms, you can get so caught up in thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm going to finally work with this species and, and 
ignore that they exist in a larger ecosystem, which involves humans. If you're going to like a very local organization where the money is being used well, and you can interact with and learn from local people and listen to their knowledge and have that be as valid in that organization as external knowledge, then 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 the money becomes a different issue or a different you know consideration then if i had that money i would be much more willing to say yes please take it you can if the money is going to be used in a way where it benefits the people and the organisms i'm much more willing to say yes please take it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i think i think it really comes down to like what what you're doing and how transparent that organization is about the money and then I don't know, there, it, there's also like a personal justification, right? So that's going to differ for every person. Um, and for me, you know, if I had a bajillion dollars, I would gladly donate it to any of these smaller organizations without hesitation. Um, so that, you know, and it's just going to be a personal preference ultimately. Yeah, I just find that the smaller ones are doing the best work. The smaller ones are small. And, and because of that, like because of their smaller size can be more involved in their community, right? Like mm-hmm. the bigger you get, and this goes, you know, with social media too, like the bigger you get, the more there is, the more information there is and the more context you have. And it's really hard to stay on that like path and that mission when you're so big. And so I think that with some of these bigger organizations, they can lose sight of like ultimately a lot of these issues, even international issues have local points of interest right and so like sea turtle conservation is an international thing but there are some areas where it's much more needed than others and so when you have small organizations they can really stay local and hone in on on what's important and what they can actually do physically that's an excellent point it's a really good point thank you what about um so comparing two individuals one person who wants to get a job in conservation and wants to do this long-term, full-time, really wants to build up a resume, and then another person who just wants to volunteer out of the kindness of their heart because they're passionate about environmental stuff but doesn't really need to build a resume. I have heard um, it said that, um, you know, the, the early career conservation is because our industry is so oversaturated with people wanting to get in the industry and not as much jobs. We shouldn't have to be paying for these experiences because then it cuts out all these issues with diversity, diversity and inclusion and people of different socioeconomic statuses cannot get into the industry and it becomes a white person, upper middle-class kind of field. And then it excludes all these other viewpoints. Point is, should we be charging early career conservationists for these experiences, these travels to add to their resume? Or should we put more of the funds onto someone who just wants to volunteer and give back who may or may not have the funds, but that's that that's kind of the, the balance I'm hearing from other people like yeah. where where should the money investment fall how can we how can we switch it over from the early career conservationists to people who might have the funds and just want to travel and give to the goodness of the yeah world, right but not add something to a resume yeah I think that's really an interesting question and I I don't it strikes me as one of those questions where if I give you an answer off the top of my head I'm going to think like three hours from now and be like, well, hold on, but that's contingent on this. And oh, so many, so many. (laughs) Right. So, you know, because then like when you ask that, it makes me think, okay, but why are we so caught up on like resume building? Like, why does somebody need 15 experiences if they Uh specialize in this? Right. Or um, that, that, that was the first one that came to mind. Or, you know, I, I just, I think 
I think an issue too is that we're so keen to like not do things locally. And I'm not saying that everybody has to do things locally, right? Like if you're in somewhere and you wanna study an animal that's not there, then obviously then you gotta think about that. I think if possible, the money, like a livable wage, not just like a barely surviving wage should go to early career conservationists. Mm -hmm. It's great if people wanna volunteer, um, that's, that's wonderful. And if they have the funds and they can, and they are in the position to pay $5,000 for three days of turtles work in Costa Rica, like that's fantastic. They power to them. They can, they can do that. Does it perpetuate the issue? Maybe, I don't know. I haven't thought enough about that. Um, I've been thinking but, about this for like a year and a half now. So, right. so yeah, <laughs> a little bit more. Well, I think, I think that, I, I really think that like the crux, one of the cruxes of the issue, I guess, can there be more than one crux? <laughs> sure. So the point in the issue is, <laughs> is, is like the hyper focus on all this experience because you have to compete so much and it totally takes away from what you're trying to do, which is conserve and raise awareness and educate. So I think that before we even can talk about where the money should go, we need to just talk about like the priorities in the field of conservation. And once those can be kind of more balanced, I, I would be, I would like to believe that then the financial aspect of all of that would also be more balanced in that if the priority is helping this animal and you need a person to help the animal, then the funds have to go to that person to be able to live to you know, help the animal, right? So mm -hmm. I think that this is such a, such like a, a such a profound question of, of money, but also just like thinking about how we are encouraging early career conservationists and the things that, you know, we're, we're asking them to do. I'm saying them, I guess I'm kind of asking us to do, but I also know that I'm, I'm speaking from a point of relative privilege, right? When I was living at home with my parents, I didn't have to worry about paying rent. So I was able to work for the nonprofit, which they did pay me, but nothing that I could have, uh, you know, lived upon um, or lived with that, that amount of money. And so you know, that, that this is one perspective and I'd be really interested to know, you know, people who don't have that, that uh, safety net to fall back on, you know, mm -hmm. what would that look like for them or where do they think that the, the money should go and how they would prioritize that. Mm -hmm. It always comes back to money. Yeah. And I think I also read something the other day that was like, why does everything that we have to do end up as a side hustle? Like we all want to be paid so much for our time, but that got me thinking like, why do I feel the need to monetize all of my talents always? Like, why do I have this need to, like, I love to, 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 to doodle and draw things. And my first thought is like, oh, I should sell this. And then that takes away from me just enjoying it. Right. Or like going out birding, should I be paid for my time, my volunteer time? Maybe, but like, maybe also I should just do it. And, and, people may listen to this and be like, wow, that's again, speaking from a point of privilege, maybe. But I also have spoken with many people of different privileges of all sorts who are like, yeah, I don't necessarily want to, because I, I thought that was such an interesting thing that I read. I've spoken about it with many people. I don't necessarily want to, you know, have to monetize and have that be like the center of everything that I do. I want to be able to enjoy things too, just to enjoy them. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part of the reason, honestly, I don't use eBird a lot is because when I'm out in the field, I just want to enjoy the birds and not have to worry about constantly being on my phone or right. like making a list and counting the numbers. And then I feel guilty because I'm not giving back to citizen science data. And then I'm like, no, just enjoy it. <laughs> right. It's really hard. Yeah. I, I was just um, in Western Michigan this past weekend and I was doing some birding and I didn't use eBird because I just wanted to enjoy and maybe I'll put it in later. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, I'm really enjoying this conversation with you, Maria. Um, and, am I pronouncing, is it your name? Yeah, it's Maria. If, if, and people have been wonderful. So an interesting thing just like, you know, within this field is, is like being seen and respected for who mm-hmm. you are. And so many people spell my name without the accent, even though on my email and Instagram, it says very clearly, like, please put the accent in. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a current thing that I'm trying to figure out how to have the energy to keep correcting folks. Um, Maybe in your email, I just thought of this, in your email um, signature, you can say an easy way how to do it on a keyboard. Is, and that's what I'm, I'm about to add. It. And I've been, I've been toying with that for five months now on if that will be too, you know, forward. But I think I'm going to have to add it because in my email, you can't add the accent in like the actual email itself. So like my email is Maria Debrowski and you can't add that in like the email. So I, yeah, I have to figure it out. But yeah, Maria is fine. And you're, so you lived in Poland. Um, I just have to put a, uh, I'm 100% Polish. Both sides of my family are Polish. No, my dad is half Ecuadorian, half Polish. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah, weird mixes. My mom is Puerto Rican, Czech, and German. Oh, I love it. So yeah. you were born in Mexico, lived in Poland, mm-hmm. and then how old were you when you had those transitions? Like, that's very formative. I was two when I moved from Mexico, but I had already started speaking Spanish, and so, okay. and because both my parents are fluent, it was important for me to keep speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I continued that in Poland, but then I lived in Poland from ages two to 11. And I can't, I can't speak Polish. I could navigate when I was there. Like I could ask for directions and speak very basic stuff, but I just, that, that language just cannot wrap my brain around it. Mm-hmm. And then 11 to 18 was in Chicago. And then, okay. And when you, when you went to get your undergrad and studied neuroscience, I remember, I read something about how you just felt like academic was, academia was really challenging and harsh and not a comfortable, safe place. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think it was two things. The first is that um, at WashU, like in many schools, there's a push for pre-med students, right? And so I was like, oh my gosh, I absolutely must be pre-med, even though I had zero interest in that. I mean, I've always been interested in like the body and how the brain works and everything, but I never, I'm I'm not cut out to be a doctor. I don't think I'm patient enough. Um, (laughs) So I... I, um, I got there, but because I was doing science courses in general, I had to take the intro science courses and I did really poorly in all of them, like C's and C minuses and all of the basic courses. And it was fascinating because in all of the courses that, you know, the professors were like, Hey, would you come chat with me? And they're like, you get this, you get the content. And I was like, yeah, I do. They're like, you're just not testing. Well. And I was like, no, I'm not. Um, and so I, I ultimately got some, you know, testing done. And I, I have some spatial issues where like, I can't keep things 
on a line. So in, you know, science calculations and math calculations, I just, it wasn't happening. And I would make so many mistakes and I just would get the answer wrong, right? Which is what matters when you're taking a test oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And so it was this really um, challenging thing where I was just really unhappy because I wasn't performing well. And I, all the professors were like, we don't know what to do with you because you can explain the content to us. You're just not achieving. So that was, that was a lot to handle. And during that, so that was my sophomore year. During that time, I was in um, a lab studying sleep and I was using Drosophila melanogaster, the fruit flies to study that. And I just, I was given a lot of free reign, but maybe too much free reign for such a young scientist. And I, I, I just didn't feel like anything was, I wasn't excited. So then mm. I got a fellowship for my junior and senior year um, which was really exciting. And so I was able to move to a Parkinson's lab um, that was studying, um, oh gosh, alpha-synuclein, uh, I'm forgetting the word now, but clumps in the brain, which can cause uh, variants of Parkinson's. It's a long story. I'm not even sure I understand the science. <laughs> Um, but I started working and I had a, a female mentor and I was excited because I was like, okay, I, I worked under a male uh, PI, which is principal investigator for a year. And I, I, he was funny, but I just, I didn't feel very supported. And I was like, okay, I'm working under a female mentor. This time it's going to be great. She threw me under the bus every time an experiment went wrong. She was constantly micromanaging what I did um, and was just not a great person. And so that was really hard. And I finally had to be, I had to go to the PI who was a man. And I was, I was just kind of nervous in general. I was not having a good time in the lab. I, I hated going and it was, I had to go from main campus to the medical campus. I had to travel there and it was not a pleasant train ride. There's a lot of um, just rude people and you know, I felt unsafe as, as a woman riding the train often. It was just like a really bad, on top of that, feeling very, very down because of my scores and everything. And so I talked to him. I was like, I can't keep working under her. It's just not okay. Um, and I was not the only one who had complained about her. So I was transferred to a different mentor. Also, female. I was like, this is going to be great. It was not. This woman oh. was often said racist things and made me feel dumb for when I couldn't do math well, which as I've mentioned, was an issue for me, right? And so it was just so bad. And so I worked there for a year and then I transferred to another lab also studying Parkinson's, this time with a female PI. And I was like, okay, this is gonna be great. I, she rolled her eyes at me so often when I would, when she would ask me a question like, why, why do you think this is? And I would say, and she would roll her eyes and be like, no. I was like, are you kidding me? This can't be real. Cause uh, my roommate and a very good friend of mine who's now getting a PhD and she's doing the coolest stuff, had great experiences in all of her labs. And so it was just, I felt, I was like, is this how academia will be going forward? Cause that would be my path, you know, once after graduating. Um, and I just was so demoralized by the entire experience that I, I just couldn't, I, it was so cutthroat. Everyone was putting everyone down. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't handle, handle it. And of course I, I may have gotten unlucky and I wasn't the only one with a, a bad PI, but then there were many friends of mine who had great experiences. So I think it depends on exactly what field you're in. Brain sciences is very, um, can be, can be, because I know some people who are wonderful in it, but can be very hoity-toity and, and exclusive and, and all of that kind of stuff. And that's just not, I can't, I can't work in that sort of environment. Yeah. I'm hearing a lot of 
um, interesting things. And I'm trying to piece it all together with your story too. So what I'm hearing is like, first of all, do you feel like the conservation community is kinder and gentler? I mean, you sound like you're more supported, but there's also this kind of, you have to pull, you know, you have to do yeah. the work and pull yourself up by the bootstrap in order to get the job and work for free for 10 years. So how does, how does the academic brain science community compare to the conservation community you're now in? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been reflecting a lot about that. So I have my Instagram is go green for the ocean. I don't think I've ever felt so supportive as I have by the community that that has been built through Go Green for the Ocean. Um, I I've, have genuine friends, which I know every time I'm like, oh, mom, I was speaking to my friend on Instagram. She's like, Maria, how can those be your friends? You've never met them. And I was like, they support me more than like a lot of people that I know in person. And so they're my friends. Um, yeah. And the lonely conservationist community, I mean, right. we're all like, in, we're all sharing these stories. We're all on the same page. Exactly. So yeah, it's just, so, it makes sense. Yeah, so I think that, you know, I felt super supported. Again, with grad school, it's hard to say because my one year of grad school so far has been pandemic. So, (laughs) yeah, so, but I, I, the people that I've met and the friends that I've been able to make um, have been wonderful and super supportive and everything. I'll say that doing some of the volunteer work that I do um, in the area with people who have a lot of knowledge, um, for example, birding, I like to bird, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good now at birding by sight, but not by sound. And I've I've felt recently very um, not included in the local birding community. Mm. Not everyone, of course. There are people who I have a birder friend who's fantastic and answers all of my questions. But um, so you know that's been interesting too because that's a conservation community that is very exclusive, um, quick to put people down, quick to police people and say what you can and can't do, um, and so. you're going to get that everywhere you go. You're going to have the wonderful people and you're going to have the not so great people. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have found so far in this community that I've had a lot of support. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think so far it's been much better in, in this field of study than it was for me personally in brain sciences. Yeah. And not to, um, I'm, I try to play devil's advocate every time I hear about stories, like what your experience was horrible being an undergrad and working under those labs but there is like especially as females this pressure to overproduce and overperform and then take all your you know stress and uh, peer-reviewed publisher parish mentality and put it on the undergrads and it just trickles down in an unhealthy way so yeah I, I mean that sucks you had to go through that and it sucks when we're the I think our generation is now seeing like we're the brunt of some of these stressors and we're like not dealing with that anymore I'm not going to put up with that yeah no I think that's true I just had a very long discussion with my mom because I think that in my excitement of of joining this field I have taken on way too much, which is not something I talk about very publicly. Sometimes I'll share that I'm working on projects and and friends who are closer will be like, wait a sec, how do you have time for that one too? And so (laughs) I've, I've kept pushing forward. Right. And I'm like, well, I got to make money. I got to work three jobs. I got to go to school. I got to do the go green for the ocean. I got to do volunteer work and I'm doing it now, but I'm, I'm, I've been, you know, pretty deeply unhappy these last few months because I've just taken on too much. And so I think I, I personally don't feel like that's because 
I am a woman and have something to prove. I, I, I've never like encountered anything where I feel that way. Mm -hmm. I just think that it goes back to this thing that we were talking about earlier, where you have to have all these experiences to set you apart. And when we're working so hard to get all of those crazy experiences, one, our mental health suffers, our physical health too, our physical health suffers, but three, like you stop enjoying things. My mom was like, you're not enjoying anything anymore. And I was like, oh, shoot, don't say that. That's, that's true. So, you know, just thinking about like really prioritizing what you want to do and maybe even writing down like a little thing that's like, here's my goal. This is my goal at the beginning and then check on that as you're in your journey and see if you're staying true to that goal. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. That is my litmus sure. test too, is, is yeah. am I, am I happy? Yeah. Am I stressed or enjoying what yeah. I'm doing? And am I aware that like there's enough, enough resources, abundance, everything that I'm like, I always feel like I have to fight kind of like I have to do more because go, go, go. You're doing so many things. Like there's a time limit on what you can produce or something like that before someone else beats you to it or right. something stupid like that. Like, no, we live in an abundant yeah. universe. That's been my refrain lately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, there's enough space for all of us. And we will, we will, if we're making good work and we're putting in good effort and we're trying to help people and help the planet, there will be a place for us. Exactly. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, that sounds like a really, I mean, it's, we're almost like an hour. Wow. <laughs> that, that sounds like a really good place to end. And is there any final thoughts or thoughts about exploitation or about the industry or about travel or about, um, you know, parachute science or indigenous culture? We hit a lot of, a we lot did. Of <laughs> um, I think that my final points would be to encourage everybody who's living on stolen or unseated or forcibly seated land to continue yep. doing your research because I think mm -hmm. that um, I think that there's no wrong way to okay I think that it's important to get started and it can be a daunting task and um, especially if you're new to an area or if you're migrating to a different country it's just important to learn about that and that that would be my one thing that I'll encourage people to continue doing even though it can be really challenging and and also acknowledging that a lot of information has been lost um yeah. over the years but I think that um the second point would just be to really prioritize what brings you joy mm. um and and just sit down and think about what you really want to do because I think so often we try to be realistic and, and encapsulate our dreams rather than actually like letting them exist as they are. And so sitting down and saying, okay, in an ideal world, this is what I would like to be doing and have that be okay for you to think about what that is, because that helps then shape your priorities. And that helps you realize, okay, maybe I don't need to be doing 15 jobs. Maybe I could do this. Right. And, and figuring out how those dreams exist within your reality, your relative privileges, your mm -hmm. passions, is is something that I think we don't allow ourselves to do is just kind of sit and dream for a moment mm -hmm. in whatever situation you're in you, you can do that I, I believe that even even bad situations you can you can sit and dream for a second and I think that's important yeah I agree with that that has been that has been really helpful to me too like just allowing myself if I had no limit yeah. on budget time whatever um, what would I do and then yeah. that has led me to building Nova Conservation. Not yeah, that I'm doing that thing, but right. it, it, it really does narrow you down and yeah. it helps figure out your priorities and what's exactly. most important. 
Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, where can people find you on social media and all the shout out things? Yeah. At Go Green for the Ocean. At Go Green for the Ocean on Instagram. It's G-O-G-R-E-E-N-F-O-R-T-H-E. Yep. O-C-A-N. <laughs> I was like, is it with a four or is it, I couldn't remember. Yes, with the with the actual word four. Um, that's it. I've tried TikTok. I've tried other things. I, I'm, I just, it's too much. I'm just on Instagram. You can find me there. <laughs> yep. Instagram is, yeah, it's a, it's comfortable, but I know I'm frustrated because they familiar. change over. Oh yeah. Yeah. But it's easy to just post a picture and share your yeah. story. So I like yeah. that. Well, it's been, it's been so lovely having you on. Thank, thank you, you for having me on. No, thank you. Thanks for sharing your stories and your, I, I didn't even talk to you about your fellowship. Really quick, what's the fellowship that you are in currently? The that- current fellowship is, is hosted by Dow Chemical, um, which is a point I- of cognitive dissonance there. <laughs> um, but we are working with... Um, a rural ecotourism lodge in Costa Rica to help them create a sustainable business model going forward, but, uh, to help them Wait, out. Of- really? Yeah. We haven't even talked about this. <laughs> I know it's too much stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's been great. Our trip to Costa Rica was canceled because of COVID. So it's a challenge to come up with a, a business model. Having not actually seen the place, hopefully we'll go in in the fall. Um, I, so it's a one year fellowship where again you have kind of a list of of things that you can choose from a a list of projects um this was an international one i think the only international one for this year i was excited because costa rica um, is a beautiful place and important to me because of friends uh, who are from there and um so this costa rica has a bunch of ecotourism lodges and there was a un grant that was given to help them a few years ago but the majority of them fizzled out because it wasn't particularly well thought out grant from what I understand. Mm. And so this one that we're, we're working with, um, this one uh, lodge is close to San Jose and um, is owned by a family. They have an organic coffee supplier. Um, they are on this beautiful cloud foresty area, lots of birds, a beautiful creek that used to be massively polluted, um, but they've cleaned up and provides water to a lot of places, but they need a, a business model so they can continue running. Um, and that's been the challenge. So we're, we're working, we're an interdisciplinary group working to create that so that once, you know, COVID ends, if that ever happens, we'll be able to, or they'll be able to, to find a sustainable income so they can continue supporting the community. That's amazing. That's really incredible. Cool. Thank you again. <laughs> Thank so you. Much. It was lovely to hear your story. Love to hear all your experiences and your advice and your beauty and energy radiate through the screen. I feel oh. it coming from <laughs> Michigan. So thanks. It's so great talking with you, Maria. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet.